Good morning and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John Lobel, your host. You'll find us here at prn.fm, the Progressive Radio Network, every Monday at 10 a.m. That's 10 a.m. <coughs> New York Eastern Time. Could be any time in your part of the world. And my special guest today is M.J. Dorian, an award-winning composer who writes music for film and television and has a podcast. So get your pencil, Creative Codex, C-O-D-E-X, and you'll find that on your favorite podcast source, including Apple. you also find him at M.J. Dorian, M-J-D-O-R. IAN.com. And from there, you can link to any of his podcasts. MJ, welcome. Thank John, you for coming. Thank you for having me. So again. I'm having, happy. yeah, I'm having MJ here today to talk about Carl Jung's Red Book. So tell us what the Red Book is, and then maybe we'll listen to a clip of your, uh, your uh, podcast about it. Wonderful. Sure. So just as a, a quick little background, what we do in Creative Codex is we take a deep dive in every episode into the life and mind of one of history's great creative geniuses. So who we spoke about Salvador Dali a while back. Who, whom else have you done? Sure, Salvador Dali, uh, Leonardo da Vinci. It's a really popular episode we did. Frida Kahlo, H.R. Uh, Giger. And so these these you creative did minds. Kahlo, didn't you? I did, yeah, yeah, Frida Kahlo. Oh, cool. So these creative minds, I mean, they offer inspiration to to people in their lives uh, for, and they have for centuries. Some of them. Now, what's kind of curious, and you know, you eventually ask, well, how does Carl Jung fit into, you know, this this long tradition of of creative minds? And at first, he doesn't. At face value, you know, you look him up, you know, you see he was a prominent Swiss psychiatrist and um, the kind of like psychological theorist of the early 1900s. And then eventually you stumble on this thing called the Red Book, which is, um, the, the way I can describe it, it's, it's one of the strangest and most enigmatic books ever written, just because of um, the various details, I mean, surrounding it. I mean, for one, it was uh, hidden and locked up in a family vault after Jung passed away in 1961 for over 50 years. And no one could look at this thing except some prominent um, psychologists who, who got permission from the family. And no one really even knew that it existed in the public. And so we have to you know, figure out what this thing is. But it ends up being a work of, of visionary creativity, really. So let me just interrupt. Yeah. Uh, it, it went public in 2009. Very recently. Yeah. Totally very recently. Surprisingly so. And this thing in, in Jungian circles and... In, in, in the psychology field, it was, it was kind of just a theory before that. It was kind of just uh, like talked about because he would always mention that something very significant happened in him between 1913-1914 that was seminal in his, his creation of his theories, and which was the Red Book. Yeah. Um, there's a clip that we can play from the episode that describes what it looks like, and maybe if Jesse uh, can sync that up, that would be... The clip called Seeing the Red Book. In this episode, we will focus on the infamous Red Book. So, what is it? If you were to enter Jung's house near Zurich in Switzerland and go to his study, as you approached his large wooden desk, you would find a massive red leather book, about 12 inches by 15 inches, inscribed in gold on the binding is a Latin title, Liber Novus. As you flip open the heavy red leather cover, you notice the pages are thick, like ancient parchment. The writing is done by hand in a careful calligraphy style. The languages are a mixture of German, Latin, and Greek. All throughout the book, there are beautiful and intricate paintings. Some of them take up the full parchment page and others are seamlessly integrated within the text. 
looking at this book, you would have to assume this is an ancient religious manuscript, maybe a work of medieval literature from a thousand years ago. This is no ordinary book. Cool. So, uh, what was going on in Jung's life in 2000, say 13 to 16, that led to this book? Um, what was going on in his life? In, it led to him oh, to oh, write this yes, book. Oh, yes, 1913 to, to 14. So, it, it was a very tumultuous period in his life during that time. Um, what ended up happening is, is as, as many people know, if you look it up, um, he is considered as, as being one of the founders of analytical psychology, along with the influence of Freud. And Freud was, was kind of like Jung's mentor for, for a time. And during uh, that time period, Freud was seen as, as untouchable for his theories and for putting a spotlight on the unconscious mind of, of human psychology. And so in that way, uh, they, they went hand in hand, and Freud his relationship with Jung uh, ended up becoming more and more uh, turmoiled because Jung started uh, seeing that perhaps there was more to the mind than, than Freud was writing about and, and understanding. And just because of the community of, of psychologists that they were in, Jung started being considered as the heir apparent to Freud's theories, but as, as a continuance of what Freud was, was positing and presenting. But Jung himself didn't feel that he wanted to continue what Freud was saying. He thought there was a lot that was uh, a mistake in, in Freud's view. I mean, even one of the main things that throughout Jung's life becomes clear is um, how much value he placed in the idea of, of meaning in people's lives and, and man's search for meaning and how that's linked with uh, the, this deep-seated uh, ability and, and understanding of symbolism in us which Freud seemed to be completely cynical of. You know, Freud's idea was all of our neuroses stem from something in childhood. After that, it's just all based on what would happen, you know? So let me uh, give our readers a, uh, a quick bibliography. I strongly recommend Joseph Campbell's Viking Portable Jung. And mm. uh, so he's edited down to one volume. <laughs> wow, uh, impressive. Is, uh, otherwise... <laughs> <laughs> when Barnes & Noble's original store on Fifth Avenue, the, in uh, the textbook section, they used to have a whole bookcase of just all Jung's books. Oh, sure. And they were all black bindings, you Ooh. know, uniform. They have to be. <laughs> uh, but anyway, <clears throat> Campbell edits that down to one, you know, pretty substantial volume and has an excellent introduction, mm. which describes... <clears throat> what Jung was doing, his life, and this uh, explosion in his relationship with Freud. And what I, the way I like to put it to my students is, imagine holding up your hand and seeing the top um, joint of each finger being your consciousness, mm -hmm. and the next joint down being your behavioral unconscious, and the next joint down being your Freudian unconscious. And that's you. It's what's happened to you as you're growing up gets embedded in there and is influential on how your life will unfold. But if you go down one more joint, you get to the palm of your hand. And at that point, all of your fingers are sharing the same palm of your hand. So Jung puts forward a notion that's sometimes called the collective unconscious, in which this is the unconscious of the culture, and we all share in it. And uh, Jung was very much rejected by, shall we say, establishment intellectual circles. Mm -hmm. um, whenever he would come up in New York Review of Books or the New York Times, it would be a rather vicious review. Mm. If somebody wrote a biography, they'd review it, mm. and it would be quite vicious. Mm. Uh, and... <clears throat> I think it was mostly because you could interpret what I just said as mystical. Sure. I mean, where would this collective unconscious reside? Right, right. right. Uh, well, where does know, the unconscious reside? We don't even know, well, right? Well, you could, if you're Freudian, you could say in the neurons of the brain. But where does the collective unconscious reside? Mm -hmm. 
<coughs> and I think there's a simple answer. It's called culture. <laughs> mm. We store, we, you know, when you have too much to store on the hard drive of your computer, you put it in the cloud. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's too much to store in your brain, you put it in the books on the shelf in your study. Mm. You put it in the paintings in the museum. Mm. So we don't have to carry those paintings around with us all the time. Mm-hmm. But they are accessible to us through our unconscious, and if we don't remember them, we can go back to the museum or the art history book and review them mm-hmm. and re-upload them into our current working thinking. Mm. So um, <clears throat> I think what, what happened was uh, Jung came to reject Freud's exclusivity of sex as being the dynamics of the personality and referring to this broader cultural foundation. And Freud, A, didn't like that, and B, couldn't handle any criticism. That's probably it, too. Freudianism was a uh, cult by every definition. And any deviation from the word of the leader would lead to instant excommunication, no one would speak to you, etc. And that happened to Jung and led to a breakdown. Right, Right, yeah, he was basically ostracized by all of his colleagues who, after he published this book, which deeply talked about symbolism, and specifically this, I mean, obviously a controversial subject involving incest in myths of, of ancient cultures. So already he's on controversial grounds, but he, he was investigating how, how symbolically incest is used. And, of course, for Freud, that's like, well, no, that's just a literal incest. You know, that's the fantasy of, of the, the child towards their parent or, or what have you. And so he was immediately ostracized by his colleagues. He was labeled a mystic rather than a psychologist because of this book. And um, because of that, you know, his so world turned upside down. What specifically is the book you're talking about right now? Um... It, it was... Uh, was it Symbols of the Unconscious or something like that? I forget the exact title. It was probably around 1912, 1913. Okay. It was around this time. Um, but yes, because of this whole tumultuous moment, um, he does have a mental break. And he begins to feel like something is, is pulsing outward from him and actually affecting his, his subjective view of reality. And he ends up having... Um, a few apocalyptic visions that could some people could describe as something similar to schizophrenia. And uh, in, in the episode on the podcast, uh, I, I recreate some of those moments because I think they're so significant. Um, so if we would like to listen to one of those, that gives us a sense. And so if, if Jesse could sync that up, that's River of Blood would be one of those visions during October 1913 that Jung had. In memories, dreams, reflections... Jung says, In memories, dreams, reflections, Jung says, Toward the autumn of 1913, the pressure I had felt in me seemed to be moving outward, as though there were something in the air. The atmosphere actually seemed to me darker than it had been. It was as though the sense of oppression no longer sprang exclusively from a psychic situation, but from concrete reality. This feeling grew more and more intense. In October, while I was alone on a journey, I was suddenly seized by an overpowering vision. I saw a monstrous flood covering all the northern and low-lying lands between the North Sea and the Alps. When it came up to Switzerland, I saw that the mountains grew higher and higher to protect our country. I realized that a frightful catastrophe was in progress. I saw the mighty yellow waves, the floating rubble of civilization, and the drowned bodies of uncounted thousands. Then the whole sea turned to blood. This vision lasted about one hour. I was perplexed and nauseated and ashamed of my weakness. Two weeks passed, then the vision recurred under the same conditions, even more vividly than before, and the blood was more emphasized. An inner voice spoke 
Look at it well. It is wholly real, and it will be so. You cannot doubt it. That winter, someone asked me what I thought were the political prospects of the world in the future. I replied that I had no thoughts on the matter, but that I saw rivers of blood. I asked myself whether these visions pointed to a revolution, but could not really imagine anything of the sort. And so I drew the conclusion that they had to do with me, and decided that I was menaced by a psychosis. Cool. So we're predictive there of World War One and later World War Two. But what else do you think that means? Right. Well, that's what's startling and, and strange about them is that they were recurring these visions. And there was also another one that had to do with um, a great frost taking over the land and, and uh, Jung serving an important part at the end of that vision where, where he was serving um, iced uh, ice wine grapes to a, a crowd of starving people. But they recurred until World War I erupted in, in July of 1914. And so he couldn't help but assume uh, it was either precognition or a mixture of uh, some kind of uh, reason of, of the tumultuous time and then his own mental break. But um, for the rest of his life, he, he couldn't really uh, come to terms with this idea that, well, maybe it was precognition at the same time that it was his own mental break. Because why not? I mean, they were so apocalyptic, he'd never experienced that before. And um, But through that, before World War I broke out, he, he felt he needed to get to the bottom of what these things were. And that's how the Red Book begins. It's him sitting down in these meditative states, possibly you know, bordering on like a hypnagogic state, and through a method that, that he perhaps stumbled on in an ancient culture he was studying. It seems that that could be very likely because he was reading a lot of these cultures at the time. He, um, he devises a digging method where he um, goes deep into himself and he visualizes constant digging deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, and um, he said that if you believe this enough as you're doing it, that fantasy leads you to more fantasies. And in the process, if there are things to uncover in, in your unconscious mind, it becomes a dialogue with your unconscious. So um, you mentioned <coughs> at the beginning of the show the relationship of Jung to creativity. Mm. And <coughs> uh, if one is going to go into psychotherapy, of course, the first thing you want is a therapist you can work well with and relate to. But maybe if you're an artist, it should be one that has a Jungian orientation. Right. <coughs> and uh, many artists, creative people, do in fact make that choice. Right. Because, um, well, going back to the point I made about the New York intellectual establishment being very dismissive of and even hostile toward Jung. Surprisingly, hmm. when the Red Book came out, all the discussions were only positive. Hmm. Uh, if you look in the New York Times, or who had always uh, taken very vicious digs at Jung, hmm. uh, suddenly was only effusive in its hmm. interest in the book. And uh, so... Maybe something's going on. I know some prominent figures in architecture who are, have Jungian analysts. Uh, mm. And again, there's this notion that, well, the model I described previously of the hand as a model of the self, and then the palm being the part that's shared. Um, artists draw from all of culture and contribute to all of culture. So there's a kind of, shall we say, swimming in an ocean of culture in the flow of ideas and creativity. And Jungianism provides a vocabulary for talking about that, mm. you know, a way to be responsive to that, which Freudianism doesn't. You know, if um, there's some artists you can recognize are very Freudian in there. I think of Jim Dine, uh, who, uh, if your 
personal neuroses are the same as his, you'll relate to his art. <laughs> if they're not, right. they won't mean anything to you. It's with a lot of artists, filmmakers and things. If, if you really like feet, you'll love Quentin Tarantino's movies. <laughs> right, right. So, but, um, you know, searching for a vocabulary for this um, more universal awareness of culture, we turn to Jung. Yeah. I, I um, personally relate more to Joseph Campbell. Hmm. And I'll make one recommendation. Um, I'm doing a lot of rereading of Campbell right now. Hmm. But I strongly recommend Myths to Live By. Myths to Live By. <laughs> and so what happens is Campbell is so immersed in German scholarship hmm. that even though he very deliberately wanted to write for a popular audience and not an academic audience, right. it can be a bit difficult. Sure. But in his lectures, that difficulty goes away. Seems like it, right. And myths to live by, well, first of all, you can get, you go to YouTube or the Campbell Foundation to get his lectures. Oh, okay. Uh, JCF, josephcampbellfoundation.org. Hmm. And you can order them. For some strange reason, they're all in five-minute clips. But oh, that's, that is <laughs> anyway, um, and and of course, so they're in the interviews with Bill Moyers, right? Which, those um, are famous as well. Those right? are those are found here and there on YouTube. Mm. But Miss to Live By was a series of lectures he gave at Cooper Union mm. in the late 1960s, and they're transcribed and edited, so they have a kind of Oh, ease of reading that <laughs> that his books, which are filled with digressions, right, right, don't right. have. They're more conversational. Yeah, way, yeah, yeah. So uh, when I have my students read Campbell, we always start with that. Hmm. But Campbell um, likes to deny being a Jungian. You hmm. know, he says, <laughs> "Yes, of course, I'm influenced by Jung." Hmm. But um, there's uh, maybe one can be a slavishly holding to certain doctrines to be called a Jungian, sure. which uh, Campbell doesn't do. But uh, as I was describing you know, before we went on the air, uh, I feel that Campbell has a more clear presentation of the notion of archetypes than Jung does. And if you want Jung's notions, probably want to read Ettinger. Mm. Uh, who presents it more clearly than Jung ever does. Right, right. But Campbell will say that an archetype is a, is a broad principle, like a dying and resurrecting God born of a virgin and associated with a cross. Mm -hmm. So, and then that maybe symbolizes the potential for rebirth to the spiritual that is in each one of us. Mm. But... Then you get Christ, Tammuz, Osiris, Adonis, Quaxacotl. <clears throat> They're all dying and resurrecting gods, born of a virgin associated with a cross. Mm -hmm. But in that case, manifest in the particulars of each one of their cultures. Right. And so um, Campbell will say um, it's limited to be attached to that symbol for your culture. And we can be more broadly liberated to see its archetypal principle. Mm -hmm. And at that point, it can tell us its meaning for us. Hmm. And of course, Campbell's most famous archetype is the hero journey. Sure, yeah. Uh, the hero is in ordinary reality, probably bored. <laughs> uh, uh, a... There's a call to adventure. Big one, yeah. There's a journey to a realm of fabulous forces <coughs> where hero helpers are encountered. There's going to be an encounter with and reunion with the Father. Mm. A decisive victory is won and a return to enrich the world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, you know, as soon as we get past the battleship attack in the first Star Wars, now number four, uh, we see Luke Skywalker dreamily looking at the twin sons mm -hmm. stuck on the farm. <laughs> sure, sure. Dreaming of another realm. And then the droid he just bought releases the hologram 
Obi-Wan, help me. Mm -hmm. There's the call to adventure. And then they take off, leaving from the bar with the strange creatures in uh, Harrison Ford's spaceship. Sure. And then, you know, we discover several episodes later, oh, my God, Darth Vader is his father. <laughs> There's a reunif reunification with the father, destroys the Death Star, and thus aids the just cause of the rebels. Yeah. yeah. And then if we go read uh, the Chinese classic Romance of the Three Kingdoms, about the rise of empires and the fall of empires and the alliances and the federations and the rebels. We get the textbook for, you know, all the politics of Star Wars. Mm. <laughs> so George very deliberately used that as a textbook. But You steal from the best, so right. you gotta do. So Campbell presents the hero journey as an archetype. Sure, and sure. And then it's Christ, Buddha, Moses, Mohammed, it's uh, the boy with the seven-leg boots and all the, the figures in the fairy tales. It's a powerful Jack story. Jack the Beanstalk. Yeah. It's, Universal. you know, Thomas Mann's Magic Mountain. It's every novel. Uh, I did a series of, um, I do a lecture on five romantic movies about Venice. Hmm. This is for cruise ships that are going to Venice. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, every one of them begins with going to Venice. So Thomas Mann's Death in Venice, uh, the character is on a ship coming to Venice mm. in um, forgetting the name of it with Catherine Hepburn. She's on a train mm. going to Venice. So that's we're separating from ordinary reality, and we're going where this special place where magical things can happen. Sure, sure. And in the Katherine Hepburn movie, it's really interesting because she always has an 8-millimeter camera jammed in front of her face. She wants to record everything because she's an American secretary who saved up for this. It's going to be her only trip to Europe in her life. But that camera is presenting her from having the experience. Sure, yeah, you know, yeah. It's protecting her from it. And we see how that gets broken down in the course of the movie. So, um, uh, Jung is the source, but I find Campbell uh, more accessible. Right, I mean, it brings up an interesting idea, and I've thought quite a lot about this myself. Um, the idea being, like, with Joseph Campbell, there's a lot of uh, focus on archetypal stories, and, and those are certainly powerful versions of, of archetypes as, as they um, become expressed in stories and films and novels. Um, and then there are just the archetypes themselves as, as just these symbols um, that seem to sprout out of us universally in every culture. And there's this interesting topic I, I think might be worthwhile to... Uh, try to hash out, which is uh, how much of something like an archetype, let's say, that's a universal archetype of mother, like something that you, you know, you distill uh, a symbol all the way down to its base element, something like archetypal mother, like this is universal, this is you can't say it's not shared across every culture, whether someone even doesn't have a mother. I, I feel like you wouldn't be out of bounds to say that they still have the archetype of what mother is inside of them, or the archetype of a doorway being a, a symbol for transformation. And this, this occurs or in every transition. culture. Or transition into another world, into another state of being. And so these things, they seem to exist in us outside of um, the, the, the cultural representation of them. I, I feel like if someone was isolated on an island um, and another person came along, they would end up sharing the same core archetypes. So that's interesting. Uh, first of all, um, the conversation we're having at this very moment, we could not have an academia. Okay. <laughs> because, <laughs> um, <clears throat> so first let me make a reference to a, a book by my late wife, Mimi Lobel, mm -hmm. called Spatial Archetypes. Spatial Archetypes. Hidden Patterns mm -hmm. of Culture and... Psyche and Culture, and it's available on Amazon. And she looks at these issues in historical terms. And this is a lot of very Jungian material. For example, you see when culture evolves from a, uh, the great mother-centered Neolithic cultures mm. 
to the emergence of four-quarter Bronze Age warriors. Mm. So the most best-known four-quarter Bronze Age warriors are the Greeks of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Mm. But every culture has them. Mm. But they only come at a certain point mm. uh, that don't exist in Neolithic cultures and Neolithic mythologies. Mm. We're talking like a warrior archetype? or Right. Yeah, okay. So this is the point where the adolescent son rises up and overthrows the mother hmm. and becomes a dominant figure and then he always slays a dragon and rescues a maiden hmm. the dragon is the earth energies of the mother he's now replacing with his masculinity hmm. and the maiden is now the all-powerful universal earth goddess universe goddess now reduced to a helpless maiden who has to be rescued by this adolescent male figure hmm. So um, what I just described is not permitted to be discussed in academia hmm. because there are no archetypes, there are no essences, there is no essentialism. Hmm. Essentialism would hold that there is an essence to women, mm -hmm. the archetype of the mother, whatever. Um, contemporary academia is anti-essentialist, everybody's equal. I see, I see. Right. Everybody's the same. Because at the moment you say women, for example, are psychically different, then maybe they should have different roles. Mm -hmm. Maybe they should have different position in society. Since we don't want that, you can't have that discussion. Well, right. Well, well, there's that. But that's almost still taking a too objective stance on things because uh, you just have to read, you know, the literature of the last thousand years and you see these patterns constantly appearing yeah, where the it's people called, it's called dead white males <laughs> well no even in female literature i mean uh, even in george sand you know you, you look at any of these writers uh that retell these stories and these stories have been retold by mothers telling them to their daughters and to their sons i mean they, you know the, these are archetypal stories i, and, I totally yeah, agree yeah. and i once asked my late wife i remember exactly where we were when we had the conversation because she's very strongly holding the position you're describing. Mm. And I said, what if you were a life form on a, a planet that was so remote it could barely see the stars and it had no sun? Mm. Would light still have the archetypal symbolic meaning right. that it has for us? And she says yes. Mm. So um, it's... Um, uh, she was very strong into this material, and yeah, uh, yeah. I recommend that book. But, yes, uh, we have these archetypes, and Campbell's position would be that we are enriched by being open to what they have to tell us. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. <clears throat> I was just describing this to my students a couple of days ago, and one of them said, so what's universal about the hero journey? Mm. I said, we're born <laughs> right. into this adventure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> every one of us. <laughs> every, every one of us is on the hero's journey. And then there is other hero journeys we go on throughout our lives through different and, chapters. And yeah. they can have, uh, they can come out badly. I exactly. Mean, some of them Prince, are tragedies, some of them are comedies. Right. When, <laughs> when, when Prince Charming attacks the um, coat of thorns that has grown around Sleeping Beauty's palace and the thorns part before his sword. Mm. He finds in there many skeletons of brave knights who attacked the thorns, were engulfed by them and killed by them. Mm. So not everybody makes it. Right, exactly. <laughs> and uh, um, I guess if we want an egalitarian society where everybody makes it, we can't have these myths. Right. I mean, well, the myths tell us something even deeper than that. I mean, you know, when you keep looking at what they're what they seem to be saying and why they're universal, they, they tell you a truth about human existence. I mean, not everybody makes it, whether we try to make the society equal or not. Someone at some point's not going to make it. And it's it's awful to face that. But life is tragic and life is full of hope and life is full of you know, um, the the deepest suffering for people who don't deserve to suffer. And it's just, Unfortunately, you know, it's a part of one of these things that we, we try to um, triumph over in our own individual ways. But what's other interesting thing about, uh, I've recalls about reading about Jung, 
in Archetypes of the Collective Unconscious. This this huge volume of his collected work. I believe it might be volume nine. And I spent one summer just trying to make sense of this thing uh, when I got into Jung about a, a year or two ago. And yeah, there, there's... I mean, there's no question that the man, when he writes uh, for his uh, psychological crowd, is really difficult to read, very dense. Uh, every sentence, you need, we need to reread it three times to really know what he's saying. There's a technical term for that. Sure. It's called bad writing. Bad writing, maybe. <laughs> Go ahead. But I think he, he had a staggering, you know, uh, a staggering and unparalleled intel intellect. So right. if he wanted to, I think he could have written differently. I think that maybe there's a, there's a reason for it. But anyway, one of the things he mentions about archetypes that gives me just a lot of pause for thought is this idea, the way he conceived them and sees them, is that they're like a, a strata for the way our brain crystallizes into a certain pattern or into a certain symbol. So they're not even symbols. They're just the propensity for a certain symbol to arise. So somewhere in our deep architecture of our brain, there, there, there's the way a crystal forms the shape that it does. Different crystals form that's different why, shapes. That's one of the reasons Jung didn't want to clarify what he meant by archetype mm. because it is, a, um, very, you know, what I described was very simplistic mm -hmm. <coughs> and he means something much more general. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I think he was, that's what he was trying to get at, but it's a very slippery idea. So it does take... Uh, you know, uh, uh, over a 100-page volume to try to narrow it down and, and make sense of it in some way without a formula. Uh, also, you know. we have to... Um, I, uh, I, I sometimes encounter my colleagues the rejection of an author if one of their positions is something that my colleagues don't agree with. And uh, I feel we, you know, we take from what we encounter what's useful and meaningful to us. And, uh, for example, <coughs> in a lot of his earlier writing, Joseph Campbell is way too much embedded in Freud mm -hmm. and, and the other Freudians. Mm. And uh, it, that totally falls away by the 1970s. Hmm. But it's there in his earlier books. Hmm. So skip over it, you know. Hmm. Uh, for example, Jung couldn't handle the overt sexuality of Eastern cultures. Hmm. So we find ritual sexual intercourse fundamental in Hinduism. Sure, we yeah. find these erotic couples carved all over, you know, in threesomes and foursomes, yeah. all over the temples. Yeah. And he says, well, of course, they didn't really do that. <laughs> These are all symbolic. Well, we now know that there are yogic practices where they do do that. Sure. And <clears throat> we're not bothered by it. But in uh, 1920s and 30s Germany, they weren't mm. uh, so spaced out as we are today. Right. Well, I don't, I don't know if they even would have bothered, bothered Jung as much as we assume they would have. Because uh, one thing I stumbled on, one of his other uh, books... It's this really curious passage where he, he's talking about the idea of masculine and feminine and that um, if, if you're a, a woman, you kind of need to uh, come to terms with the masculine inside of yourself. And if you're a man, vice versa. And if you don't, you know, that's your sh it becomes part of your shadow and it gets pushed into uh, unseemly areas and, and kind of sprouts out in unhealthy ways. So one of the things he suggests for men, and this was, you know, in the in 1920s in, in this time period, he says that uh, one of the ways a man can, can get in touch with his feminine side if he feels troubled and it's kind of uh, stopping him is to dress like a woman, even in private, is to put don a woman's clothes. And that's, that's a kind of a revolutionary idea for that time period. Sure. Um, even today, some people would be like, oh, that's kind of a weird thing to do. Um, even though, you know, we're a large amount of society would say, oh, sure, you know, explore that part of you. But... So I think he was maybe a, a little more progressive than in, in his public face he, he would per perhaps show. So are there other clips you uh, brought for us? Sure. Uh, the other two, I believe, yeah, are uh, clips where I do kind of a simulation of some of these visions that he wrote in the Red Book. Um, one of them is just one of his most significant 
and he kept writing about it for the rest of his life. The, the clip, if Jesse can pull it up, is called Descent into Hell. I stand in black dirt up to my ankles in a dark cave. Shadows sweep over me. I am seized by fear, but I know I must go in. I crawl through a narrow crack in the rock and reach an inner cave whose bottom is covered with black water. But beyond this, I catch a glimpse of a luminous red stone, which I must reach. It is a six-sided crystal which gives off a cold, reddish light. I wade through the muddy water. The cave is full of the frightful noise of shrieking voices. I take the stone. It covers a dark opening in the rock. I hold the stone in my hand, peering around inquiringly. I do not want to listen to the voices. They keep me away. This dark hole, I want to know where it leads and what it says. An oracle? Is this the place of Pythia? Here, something wants to be uttered. I place my ear to the opening. I hear the flow of underground waters. I see the bloody head of a man on the dark stream. Someone wounded, someone slain floats there. I take in this image for a long time, shuddering. I see a large black scarab floating past on the dark stream. In the deepest reach of the stream shines a red sun, radiating through the dark water. There I see, and a terror seizes me, small serpents on the dark rock walls, striving towards the depths where the sun shines. A thousand serpents crowd around, veiling the sun. Deep night falls. A red stream of blood, thick red blood springs up, surging for a long time, then ebbing. I am seized by fear. What did I see? Cool. Well, for anyone who's tuned in uh, not at the beginning, my guest today is MJ Dorian. I'm John LaBelle. This is Visionaries. And what you just heard was an excerpt from his podcast on Carl Jung's Red Book. You find that on your favorite podcast source under Creative Codex. And also, if you go to MJ Dorian, mjdorian.com. You can click and get right to uh, any of his podcasts on Leonardo da Vinci, Salvador Dali, etc. So what did we just hear? So this was one of Jung's most profound visions that he had during one of these meditative deep dives into himself. And it, it threw him back so much because he wasn't expecting the, the depth of symbolism. I mean, you hear, you hear about the scarab, you hear about um, what looked like a hero figure with a severed head. You hear about the river of, of water that turns into blood, the, the deep sun that's submerged in the water that's being um, veiled by serpents. And so just the depth of uh, imagery and symbolism uh, he ended up trying to make sense of it for years to come. And you can say a number of things about it, but it, it started, it was one of the first visions that started this whole process for him that resulted in uh, a whole volume called The Red Book that is loaded with about uh, a few dozen more of these kinds of visionary moments. So one of the uh, things <coughs> there, I gather, I didn't realize this, I got the red book when it came out, and it's a huge volume. It said it's about 12 inches by 15 inches. The original, yeah. Very thick and uh, done in uh, what looks like medieval calligraphy and rich with paintings that, not in any way to be unkind, might describe they look like New Age art. And mm. lots of mandalas, Jung's being on mandalas. And I see uh, MJ has in front of him a reader's edition, mm. which leaves out the illustration so he can carry it around in its text. And <clears throat> one, of the, one of the tools in therapy that Jung used was the mandala. Mm. And he would have his patients make drawings. And very typically, they would draw mandalas. Mm. And if the mandala was screwed up, 
Uh, that meant they were screwed up. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. And as they worked their way through therapy, <laughs> oh, that's good. When, their, when their drawing of a mandala was well-ordered, that meant they were now well-ordered. <laughs> so, but it's interesting, um, two observations about the mandala. One is that it, it is not there in Paleolithic and Neolithic culture. Hmm. It comes about in four-quarter cultures, hmm. um, which are um, psychologically male-centered, hmm. and, <clears throat> and it's, you know, the three-dimensional mandala is the pyramid. Hmm. So when, as cultures become more hierarchical, the mandala becomes hmm. the, the pyramid or the three-dimensional temple. Hmm. And uh, another um, observation is um, Joseph Campbell wrote a very important essay called Symbol Without Meaning. Hmm. And it's in his book, Flight of the Walgander, which is a collection of essays. And in it, he says that since the first high cultures in the late Neolithic, and we think of uh, uh, ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia, that culture continued right into, it's all one culture, and it continued right up to the Renaissance. Hmm. And with the Renaissance, we broke free of it. And that culture is centered around a priesthood, and we're now emerging into a culture which can now have the individual liberty of shamanism. Hmm. So the shaman is a free agent, hmm. whereas the priest is the ordained agent of an institution. Hmm. And uh, the shaman has to be able to do the real thing. They have to be able to, if your soul has wandered off, go on a soul retrieval and get it. Mm -hmm. Whereas the priest only has to administer the rituals of the, of the church. They mm -hmm. don't even have to believe them. As long mm -hmm. as they do them right, they're supposed to work. So um, Campbell says, uh, he, he, this is a lecture he gave to the Uh, an annual conference in at Jung's home in Switzerland, and I'm hmm. trying to remember the name of the conference. But he had been there as an—they didn't respect Americans. <laughs> so he was there for several years, and they finally, after he was editing the English editions of all their annual proceedings, they said, yeah, you can give a paper. Uh, okay. So he, his paper was— the model is not universal, wow. but it's of this particular period in civilization and is no longer appropriate. No kidding. So that put everybody in shock. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, they weren't happy to include him. <laughs> right. Uh, but even the idea of shaman, uh, that's uh, through archaeological evidence. It's, it's proving to be a very ancient idea as well. I mean, uh, there was a recent one within the last year. I read an article in, in somewhere in South America. They found evidence of... Uh, 40,000-year-old uh, shaman pouch that uh, had uh, ayahuasca, um, uh, evidence of ayahuasca being used from that long ago, uh, like for shaman's pouch. And it's crazy. So it's interesting how it remains alive today. Hmm. Uh, I mean, you can, you can be an urban shaman and go take a workshop at the <coughs> New York Open Center, hmm. but there are tribal peoples that still have the tradition intact for 40,000 years. Yeah. And it, it also, when you look at it, it, you can see it as foundational to the um, high culture religions. So the, the shaman negotiates three worlds, this mm. world, the underworld, and an upper world, mm. earth, heaven, and hell. Mm. Uh, the, you know, it's all... You can parallel a shamanic journey to Dante <laughs> hmm. in these travels. So do we want to do one more clip? If you think we have time. Um, yeah, we have about five minutes. Okie doke. So there's, there's two recurring characters in a number of Jung's visions of this type in Red Book. And one of those two, that pair, is Elijah and Salome, both biblical figures. Aha. Uh -huh. And so this clip is called Elijah and Salome, and it uh, describes that. On the night when I considered the essence of God, 
I became aware of an image. I lay in a dark depth. An old man stood before me. He looked like one of the old prophets. A black serpent lay at his feet. Some distance away I saw a house with columns. A beautiful maiden steps out of the door. She walks uncertainly, and I see that she is blind. The old man waves to me, and I follow him to the house at the foot of the sheer rock wall. The serpent creeps behind us. Darkness reigns inside the house. We are in a high hall with glittering walls. A bright stone, the color of water, lies in the background. As I look into its reflection, the images of Eve, the tree, and the serpent appear to me. After this, I catch sight of Odysseus and his journey on the high seas. Suddenly, a door opens on the right onto a garden full of bright sunshine. We step outside, and the old man says to me, Do you know where you are? I say, I am a stranger here, and everything seems strange to me, anxious as in a dream. Who are you? The old man responds, I am Elijah, and this is my daughter Salome. I respond, The daughter of Herod? The bloodthirsty woman? Elijah asks, Why do you judge so? You see that she is blind. She is my daughter, the daughter of the prophet. I say, What miracle has united you? Elijah answers, It is no miracle. It was so from the beginning. My wisdom and my daughter are one. Cool. Well, uh, let's uh, wrap up. MJ, anything else you want to say before we sign off? Sure, just a brief. Um, so the Red Book and the thoughts and theories of Jung, I mean, these are things left for, for us, for everyone in society and, and the world to continue to try to understand uh, because they are for the benefit of all humanity. Great. So uh, our show today will be online in a couple of days as soon as I get the description to our engineer, and you'll find it at visionaries.podbean.com. And our guest today has been M.J. Dorian, award-winning composer uh, who writes music for film and television. Go to his website at mjdorian.com and go to podcast slash, well, go to creativity-codex on your favorite podcast source and find his uh, podcast on other creative figures. And we even get production values. There's sound effects and music and the whole thing. So thank you for being with us. A pleasure to be here. Thank you.